You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. We find ourselves recording the intros and the outros quite often on a Monday. Do you think we're primed to be at our best on a Monday morning? Is anyone at their best on a Monday morning? Well, I think I am. Like oh, I'm, really? I'm hitting this hard today. Like I'm jumping. Like I'm going to do some of my best work today on this Monday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll wait. I'll wait for it. We haven't heard it yet. <laughs> yeah, no, we haven't. Forty-two episodes in. This yeah, is episode I've, number forty-two. I could peak. It is episode forty-two. Who have we got on today? Today we have Tim Reed. Who is Tim Reed? Tim Reed. What a great man Tim Reed is. Well, uh, Tim describes himself as a husband and father, an optimist and a technologist. Oh. Which is amazing. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll hear lots more from Tim um, shortly. But just so that I can, you know, get us off and, and peak today yeah. in terms of you know, great content. How was your weekend? Oh, good. Oh, so we're building the segue. Yeah, okay, here, gotcha. Here uh, uh, my weekend was very good. I got to a couple of live sporting, sporting events, events live sporting yeah. events. So yeah. there was 50,000 at the MCG to see Hawthorne versus the Blues, yep. me versus David Ritter's team, mm. and us versus David Ritter's team. Mm. And it was described as a, a game where both teams tried not to win. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But beautiful sunshine. We're being spoilt here in the Melbourne autumn. It's amazing. It can't last. But i tell you what I did notice at the MCG – was your, hang on before you say that. What was your other sporting event? I went to the Melbourne Vixens netball. Oh, yeah. Which is awesome. It's amazing. I was uh, quite quite impressed. What made by it so awesome and amazing? Uh, well, I'd never been to netball before apart from... You've never been to the netball? Not to the super netball, no. Right, okay. Um, but as the same as it happened at the MCG, there were just screens everywhere. Mm. Like all around the boundaries and, you know, the MCG and you... Called advertising, right? Well, yeah, but it's it, it's just different to what it used to be. You know the old Benson and Hedges signs at the cricket. <laughs> I do remember those scarily enough. Yeah. yeah, and then at the Vixens netball, yeah. uh, my earliest memories of you know in, indoor sports, you know live sports, was going to support the Bendigo Braves out in Bendigo. Yeah, and you know obviously everything's very static back then, but they were pretty big on the announcements. With the Vixens, it's fireworks and it's live dancing, and they play music throughout the entire sport. So just surrounded by technology the entire time. Segway. Technology. Yeah. Segway. <laughs> I like it. What's, so your earliest, what's your earliest memory of a piece of tech that blew you away? Uh, that blew me away. Blew that, you away. I'm still not sure when that sort of moment arrived. But I remember there was an Apple IIe in the classroom. I would have been in year three or four or something mm. like that. And I remember we, we were all looking at it just going, I don't know what to do with that. And then we'd go and run around and do something. But Dad bought us a Commodore 64 mm-hmm. that ran off a tape. Yeah. So I, I remember sitting there, um, we had this tiny little TV that was connected up to it and you'd have to type in some sort of commands that I didn't know what I was doing. I was just sort of typing whatever Dad or my brother said and it would launch this little flight simulator type thing where it was, you saw this plane, you could go up, do a loop the loop and then you sort of go, well, I don't know what to do next. You're sort of crossing your fingers that it would work this time. Um, but obviously technology's played a, pretty large part in my life and yeah I was there from before the internet was even born 
And then we got dial up. And yeah. everything sort of uh, went from there. Yeah. How about you? What was your earliest? Well, it, it was Apple related as well. I had a mate who lived uh, about seven or eight houses down in the same street. Darren Veach was his name. Gee, I hope he's uh, listening and hope Beachy. he's pr- yeah. pr- pressed the subscribe button. Um, anyway, his old man was right into IT and same deal, created this game. He coded this game and I remember jumping on thinking, this is absolutely amazing. He also had another game hooked up to his TV called Pong. Do you remember you Pong? so old. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it, was, it was absolutely unbelievable. But there is probably the worst segue into this week's episode coming up just about right now. We're going to hear from Tim Ray. Hey, Blake, before we get stuck into this episode, yeah. where should our listeners go if they want to hear more stories of people doing they should jump on to www.thedolanders.com.au and what will they find there, Nick? No, not .com.au, Blake, just .com. Oh. Don't make that mistake. You can hit us up on Facebook, you can hit us on, up on Instagram and our website and you can find a whole heap of pictures, articles, links. Recipes? Not a ton of recipes, okay. but you, you just never know what you'll find. Thedolanders.com, no.au. Do it. You are listening to part A of our chat with Tim Reid. Don't forget to listen to part B. Feeling like I'm about to go in for surgery. I don't know why. (laughs) No, it will be fun, Tim. It will be fun. All right. We good? We're good. Hey, Tim. Welcome to the Doolanders. How are you? Thanks, Blake. I'm very well. How are you? I am fantastic. Nick. How are you, mate? I'm good, Blake, and it's great to see Tim here on the other end of a video call in what can only be described as a padded cell. <laughs> you, you, you do look like you're in a padded cell, but it, it looks like a luxury it padded does, cell it does. to me. Hey, Tim, we always like to ask our guests on the, on the Doolanders, firstly, tell us who you are, and then what do you do? Uh, so I am a husband and a father. Uh, first and foremost, um, I've been very fortunate um, to be married to a wonderful woman for 20 years and we have three beautiful children. Uh, I would secondly define myself as an optimist mm-hmm. um, and someone who believes in the uh, potential of people. Um, and I'd thirdly say I'm a technologist. I've always been a little bit of a geek and someone who, who enjoys technology. Uh, what do I do? So I do a few things. I um, am managing director of a private equity fund uh, that a mate and I run uh, that invests in Australian tech businesses. It's a $400 million fund, and we can probably talk a bit more about that later on. I am also president of the Business Council of Australia. Um, so we are an organisation that represents the voice of big business in public policy um, debates. Um, so in meeting with the government, with the opposition, with other stakeholders in the community, the union movement, the environmental movement, etc. Uh, and I also sit on the board of Transurban, uh, one of Australia's sort of big 10 companies as a non-executive director. So between those, um, those three different things, it, it keeps me busy. I bet it does. That is all fascinating. But what I really want to know out of all of that is... You've been married for 20 years. 
what did you do for or thereabouts? Have you have you celebrated your twenty year anniversary? Uh, it, it's twenty two years now, so so oh, yeah, right. so we did celebrate twenty. Okay, are you a romantic, Tim? I'm probably the wrong person to ask there, Blake. What would Corolla? Here's Corolla wife? on the yeah, line yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what would Corolla say? Is Tim a romantic? She would say. I reckon she'd give me seven out of ten. That's not too bad. Yeah. What about the other way around? Is she? What would you give Is her? Corolla romantic? Well, I've got to give her more than seven, or she's <laughs> going to listen to this, and you I'm going to be in so much trouble. Yeah. So I'll give I'll give her a nine. <laughs> <laughs> now that is smart. Yeah. That is smart. Okay, you spoke about uh, you're the president of the Business Council of Australia and uh, doing my research, which was, you know, took me a long time. I went and had a look at your purpose and the purpose for the BCA is to ensure that Australia is economically strong and to support a fair, free and inclusive society for all Australians. I tell you what, the, the view from where you sat through 2020 must have been an absolutely remarkable one when you when you reflect back on that time to the beginning of last year was there a time when it became super clear of what impact COVID-19 was going to have on um, the Australian economy and how seismic that was and as the president of the BCA you know what do you do to help solve for that you know gigantic problem Yeah, so I don't think there was a time when it became super clear. And to be honest with you, I think there's still discussion right now as to what the long-term impact of COVID will be on Mm. the structure and the makeup of the economy. But there was a time about 12 months ago now, so sort of back in March, April last year, where um, every day it seemed like the the half-life of information was getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. So it seemed like on Monday we started the week thinking one thing and then by Wednesday we thought again and then by Friday it was a whole other scenario that we were dealing with. Um, I remember saying to someone when I first heard that the premiers might close borders that that will never happen in Australia. We just, like our supply chains won't stand it. Um, you know, the, the, it, that, that's a crazy idea. And by the end of the week we were sen- spending serious amounts of time helping draft regulations so that supply chains didn't collapse as state borders were closed. And, and you know, I, I remember spending a weekend on the phone with um, Treasury officials helping um, shape the nature of JobKeeper. Um, and a week before, I'd heard of wage subsidies, you know, where the government would pay everyone salaries, yeah. just thinking, well, that's just, like, that's crazy. That That couldn't happen. So... There was a time back then when it, fe- it seemed like the pace at which things were moving was just ever accelerating and, and it, it was difficult to see where the end might be. Uh, and you can see it now, right? I mean, the misforecasting of things like JobKeeper by, you know, $50 billion or so yeah. um, at, at different points. Like, you know, we went into this with about that much, um, that, that, you know, deficits that had never been um, in that dollar figure amount, and that was one line item in a budget, and that was the misforecasting of that one line item. Um, so it was um, it was extraordinary. Um, I, I, I will say I think it showed um, me 
that Australia still has a deep sense of community um, in it. Uh, you know, you go back and um, the forecasts around the need for intensive care beds, uh, it was pretty clear at the time that there was no right answer because you either got on top of the virus, in which case the existing IC units would have been fine, or you didn't, and it was there was just no way you could possibly um, build the number and the facilities that were needed if the virus got out. Yeah. And, you know, and there were mass graves in New York within weeks of that happening. You know, people literally just piling bodies up on football fields. And, um, and, and so the, the response of our government at the time, but also the way in which I'd say all of the stakeholders, the community groups, whether it be the trade union movement, whether it be businesses, um, got around and supported the government in making those decisions. Um, and then the community got behind that. Uh, where people actually acted really responsibly. I mean, when we went into lockdowns, people went into lockdown um, and they understood that the personal sacrifice from that was going to be to the greater good. Very few places in the world did that. Yeah. You know, a, a couple of Asian nations were able to do that. Um, some because they sent the military in, in the case of China, uh, um, and literally um, locked doors um, and, and didn't let people out. You know, um, South Korea, Taiwan, etc., did it quite well. Um, we did too, um, but there were very, very few communities that, at that moment in time, showed the capacity to understand that personal sacrifice was in everyone's greater good, and to then, by and large, follow the rules. And so, um, you know, it was extraordinary. But as a team, Australia, I, I think we did a great job and actually showed the real strength of who we are as a nation. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions around that, actually. In your position, was there a sense generally that Australians would not be compliant with, with lockdown measures? Uh, there, there, there were varying opinions, um, as there always are. Um, but there were certainly, um, and again, I think it was that, that time, Nick, where um, views and opinions were just changing incredibly rapidly. Right. So, I mean, there was discussions. Could you play a football game with no crowd? Right. And, um, you know, well, that, that would be crazy. That won't happen. You know, people will turn up, et cetera. No one turned up to the footy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very, very quickly. Um, but none of those were foregone conclusions. I think the, um, that there were views out there that this just won't work, that we'll have uprisings that, you know, and the panic buying that you saw in supermarkets and so on. You know, that, um, which at the times got fairly nasty. I mean, there were lots of videos, you know, that went viral of people who acted, you know, probably in ways that today they might reflect on and not be so proud of. Um, but there was a, there was a, I'd say an underlying degree of confidence that, um, if, if the communications were clear, if people treated others like adults, that people would realize the, and recognize the threat. And, and then act, um, act in the way that, that they were being asked. Yeah, okay. One of our previous guests was James Thornton, the CEO of Intrepid Travel. And it was around March, or maybe it was earlier, maybe in Feb, he started to get wind that Qantas was having crisis meetings already twice weekly. When did you and the Business Council of Australia uh, start to take the impending threat of COVID, I guess, at a crisis sort of level? 
Yeah, so it was right back then in February. Um, and as soon as, you know, Australia was the first nation to close borders with China um, in the world. And so right from the start, at, at that moment in time, we realised that it wasn't going to be business as normal and that we needed to start preparing and preparing our members uh, for what was coming. Um, and so we started having very regular member meetings uh, where we were teeing up different people from the public service to explain directly to um, to the business leaders of Australia uh, what was going on, what they were seeing, why they were acting the way they were. And I've got to give full credit, um, firstly, to our team at the BCA, but secondly, to the Australian Public Service. Uh, it's not always a part of the community that we recognise, but they were incredibly open and very transparent in their communication at that time. And I think that built confidence in business leaders that, that they could go away and then do what needed to be done in their business um, so that we could keep lights on, you know, we could keep um, food um, in people's pantries, you know, that, that we could keep the telecommunications infrastructure working, uh, but that they, you know, we could do it in a way that was going to comply with the required um, um, governance and, and, and changes in regulation that the government was putting through. Yeah. You know, you reflect back on that period of time and you look at the volume of change that happened in such a short period of time in life, in business, and I think it's what it's helped us do is set a new benchmark of the, the pace of change. So when you reflect back on that now, do you think that the expectations of businesses and organisations around, you know, once we thought it would take us two years to go from A to B, well, that'll take us three months now. Do you see that uh, are people talking, you know, the, the members of the, the Business Council of Australia talking that way? And, and do you think that'll continue? Or do you reckon we'll go back into the old, uh, you know, um, steady as she goes approach? Yeah, so my hope is that we will hold on to some of it yeah. um, and, and we will revert a bit. And, um, and let me tell you sort of one of my favourite stories um, to, to, um, to shine a light on where I think the, the right balance is. Um, so obviously through COVID, um, you know, people were in lockdown. There was at-risk populations, including those in prison, because if COVID got into a prison, then, you know, it was going to have big implications. Um, and so... Uh, across the country, most prisons shut down visitor access. Right? Now, that obviously has an enormous impact on the welfare of the prisoners and of the, the families of, of, of those inmates. Um, and so one prison started organising virtual visits, um, um, just you know, using um, Zoom and um, having an iPad and allowing that to take place. But obviously there was a risk there that the technology would be used for things that it wasn't meant to um, because, yeah. you know, give someone an iPad and a Zoom account and away you go. Mm. Uh, and the only way they could deal with that was by having a member of the prison staff present during those meetings, during those visits. Um, and so that's what they did. Um, from what I've heard, the, um, the, the benefit of those visits was enormous and in many senses brought different benefits to an in-person uh, visit uh, because it meant the inmate could go back into their home, they could discuss things, 
with their family members in the context of decisions that were being made. You know, they could actually, you know, a, a window into um, their life um, and, and what was there for them outside of the prison walls. Now, that happened very, very quickly. And so the procedures put in place were incredibly manual and frankly, very expensive and not the way that you would probably ideally set that up going forward. Uh, but the innovation took place and it's something that will bring benefit now well beyond COVID. Yeah. And so I, I think the, the sort of the message there is you, you, you want to be able to test things really quickly, you know, and see if there is a benefit and if so, what that is at low cost. But then you are going to have to get to a point where you stand back and say, all right, this is worth pursuing, uh, but we actually need to set it up in a way that's more scalable than what we did when we only had 48 hours to come up with a solution. Yeah. And that's where I hope Australian businesses go, that they hold on to the fact that actually you can test things pretty quickly. Um, and yes, it's not perfect. Um, and, and Blake, you will remember the lean startup and the conversations we had at NYB around that thinking of, of, you know, of, of really test and learn, test and learn, um, uh, before you, you know, you put the heavy investments into, to building something that's built to last. Um, but, but my hope is that, you know, Australian business will find that middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Hey, talking about, you, you mentioned up front, we're talking about technology. You mentioned up front you're a technologist. One of the platforms that the B, BCA um, stands for and, and pushes is that in the hope that Australia becomes a top five digital nation by 2030, what needs to happen? What do we need to do for that to actually happen? Yeah, so lots needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say, look, this is the Prime Minister's aspiration and we've really grabbed onto it because right. we think it's great um, and we do believe in setting targets. We believe in setting targets for emissions reduction. We believe in setting targets Good. for things like um, digital technologies. Um, and in this case, the Prime Minister has also agreed that setting a target is a good thing to do. Uh, so we have we have grabbed in onto it um, and we're highly supportive of that. Look, I, I think there's a lot of things. The first is, well, how do you measure what a leading five digital nation is? What does that mean? And so, you know, we've been working with the government to think through, well, what does, what, what are the metrics that would ac actually represent that we've got there? And, and there, there are two different categories. One is the specific metrics around digital adoption. So that might be the percentage of GDP that comes through, um, technology, goods and services. It might be, um, the, um, the, the number of people who are employed in certain sectors. It's, it's things like that. The other one, um, is the, the, the productivity of the entire workforce, believing that if you are a leading digital nation, people will be more productive in what they do and therefore it will flow through. And, and the argument there would be, well, technology will allow our minds to be the most productive minds in the world. And technology will allow our retailers to be the most productive retailers in the world and so on. So there's, the, there's sort of the macro and yeah. then what I call the, the, the industry specific metrics. And, and so we're, we're in conversations with the government. The, the government will come up with a set of metrics that they say, this is what we're going to, um, to embrace. Um, around that definition. Um, I, I think that though, whatever it is, like, um, 
there are going to be challenges in getting there. Uh, I think there will be challenges in terms of the supply of skills to be able to get there. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, look, at Potentia, we have six software businesses in our portfolio today. Across the board, hiring software engineers is difficult. It's been difficult for a decade, but it is getting tighter. And particularly right now, when we can't bring in skilled migrants to the country, it's even more difficult than, than it otherwise would be. Uh, so that, that is going to be a challenge. Um, I, I think government is a huge part of the economy. I mean, governments um, represent about 30% of the economy. Um, I think in the federal government, we have um, a government that is realising that they need to lead by digitising government services. Yeah. I would say the only government in the nation that's really done that is the state government in New South Wales, uh, where they've been under that program for about 10 years. And I've got to say, it's... It's really the benefits are now coming through as um, as a New South Wales resident. The more and more stuff you can do on the Service New South Wales app, the whole concept of Service New South Wales, I think, is five to ten years ahead of of where most governments around the nation are. So, uh, so there's a fair bit to do there. Uh, there there will be um, a, a lot of work um, to be done in terms of cyber security and just making sure that behind the scenes. You know, there are bad players out there. Yeah. Um, and I think the analogy is sort of like, you know, you don't expect every single business or every single person to, um, to buy a gun and to be able to defend themselves. Um, you, the, the community expects that as a nation, um, we're going to have armed forces that, that are there to protect our physical security. Um, and I think the same will happen in terms of cyber, that there is going to have to be a, a, a big step up. And, and again, I know um, both um, major parties are very supportive of the government doing this, um, a, a big step up in um, cyber security uh, for us to be able to get to that point as a nation. So there's lots to do. Um, and lots of other countries are focused on it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they'd like to have tech sectors as well. Uh, and we're way behind. If you look at the US, if you look yeah. at Israel, if you look at Lithuania, like we're, we're way behind. Um, so we're look, behind it, Lithuania. It, we are, we are. Um, Estonia and Lithuania have some of the most digitized governments in the world. Um, they're like, you know, they had the benefit of they're, they're young countries. Yeah. They're very small countries. Yeah. They're one level of government, but, but they've be, built e-government, um, just yeah. right from the start. So. Um, yeah, so there's, there's lots to learn and lots for us to do. What I'm delighted about is that this is a focus of the government and it's a focus of the Prime Minister. Yeah, cool. I reckon there's probably three hours of discussion we could have about this, but we'll, we'll keep moving. So you're also the Managing Director at Potentia Capital, which is a private equity firm, and you, you mentioned that you've, you're specifically focused on local ANZ tech businesses in your spare time in 2020 you ran around to raise some funds so for the uninitiated you know what does a private equity firm do and how do you run around saying can i have some money because i want to buy some businesses and what's the difference between private equity fund and a venture capitalist yeah all great questions um so yes, I am uh, one of the two managing directors of Potentia Capital. I'm in business with an old friend and um, a business partner of mine, Andrew Gray. Uh, and uh, so, so private equity um, 
generally raises money from superannuation funds, um, and that's where most of our money came from. And if, if you want to start a private equity fund, you go out and you meet the relevant people within the superannuation funds and pitch them like you would pitch any other business idea um, to, for, for them to invest in it. And we, um, we did a lot of work looking at private equity in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and private equity is about twice as penetrated into the US and European economies as it is in Australia. And our thesis for that, um, as to why that was, is that up in those um, regions, there are sector-specific private equity funds. Whereas in Australia, there were 48 private equity funds and all of them were generalists. What that means is that they said, we want to raise this money and we will invest in any business that we think is a good investment. We said we want to raise the money and we will only invest in tech and tech-enabled businesses in Australia and New Zealand. And by doing that, we will develop real expertise, which we thought we had some credibility in already, around why we would be able to identify really good businesses in those sectors, um, invest in them to grow and improve them, and therefore be able to sell them somewhere down the track at a higher price than what we bought um, them for, and therefore return positive um, returns to our investors. And that's pretty much what private equity does. Um, Private equity... Um, buys a business, invests in the business, um, drives transformational growth, and then sells it at a later stage. And the plan is for a higher price and therefore um, returning um, more money back to investors than the amount that they um, invested in the fund. Uh, it's a, so we raised a $400 million fund, um, which is a good size for a first fund. Um, and we think about the right size uh, for the sweet spot of technology deals in Australia. Uh, we target um, deals that have an enterprise value, so the value of the business is somewhere between 50 and 100 million, uh, but we have done investments that are at 20 million rather than at sort of that 50 million, uh, and we would be capable of doing them up to 200 million if we found something that we really loved. Um, and, and, and yeah, we do that by bringing some co-investors in along with us. Uh, So, Nick, the difference between private equity and venture capital is venture capital tends to invest at the start of a business's life. So they might be, it might just be an idea. It might be one year old. It might be two year old. It's highly likely that the technology isn't fully baked and that the business model isn't fully proven. Um, It's quite likely that the business will be losing money at that point in time and the VCs will be coming in to bring skills and expertise to work with the entrepreneurs to really try and hit a hockey stick growth. So for venture capital, they're going to be wanting to invest in businesses where they think the revenue can double every single year. Private equity tends to come later in a business's life. So our businesses are between 15 and 30 years old that we've invested in. In each of them, it has been a founder who has run the business for either all or the majority of that time. And the founder is sort of 15 years later saying, actually, um, I, I want to transition out either immediately or at some time over the next few years. And I really want to work with a capital partner who can help optimize the value of the business and get it ready for sale and help me through that next sale process. Um, so either one of those. And we've got some founders who are still CEOs of our businesses and some who left as we bought them. And that was always the plan. They were selling the business because they wanted to go on and do something else in their life. Yeah. Uh, private equity tends to take control positions. 
So we're more than 50% owners in each of our businesses, whereas venture capital might take a 10% ownership um, stake in the business as well. So they're, they're really different types of capital aimed at different stages in a business's life. There was a recent article in the Australian Financial Review uh, that interviewed five of your um, tech companies CEOs on you know how do you deliver um, transformation in the industry it was a fascinating article but the thing that I found most fascinating was the actual caricature of you have you seen <laughs> what that um, cartoonist did to your face uh, I have seen that like yeah. they've printed it more than once in the newspaper <laughs> had did anyone comment on mate they've clearly got you on a bad day because you look about 30 years older in that cartoon than you really do in real life. <laughs> I, I, I just stand back and I look at it as a badge of honour that someone took the time to actually draw a caricature of me. You've so, made it. You have. You, know. you have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you, so, you know, you're the President of the Business Council of Australia. There's a lot going on. You're, you know, co-MD of Potential Capital you're sitting on five boards, you're chairing five boards of these five organisations. When you get home of a, an evening and you think, gee, I had an enjoyable day today, what are the bits that you enjoy the most? Like what, what are the bits that make you go, shit, I, I had a great time. That was amazing. Um, so I like building things. Um, so I love it when I'm working with one of our CEOs and um, and there's a milestone, a moment of success. So in Education Horizons, um, the business there um, is a leading provider of software to independent schools. And the idea is to try and take the administration work away from a school so that teachers can spend more time teaching. Um, and we're replatforming and building um, a, a new cloud platform that brings together the back office of the school, so the school admin and the class admin, and it will be a unique offering in the market. And you know, a couple of months ago, we went live with our very first school on that platform. And so I go home that day and I'm like, yes, like, you know, <laughs> we're away. This, yeah, this is years and, and, you know, we're probably eight or nine million dollars of investment into this platform and we've got a school and we're getting feedback from a school. So those are great days. Uh, I love working with people, and so I like um, I, I like sort of enabling environments that allow people to bring their best self to work each day. And so I love it when I see teams come together, and I love it when I see a dynamic where um, people um, obviously feel comfortable enough to be able to be um, at risk. Um, to be able to put ideas out there that you know that they know might be a little out there, but they're going to be sort of supported and respected. And and so I love seeing teams come together and teams form where the team is greater than the individual components. And so many teams are less than the sum of the individual components because, yeah. you know, people aren't comfortable and they actually hold back because someone else is there or, you know, the environment is such. Um, so I think the days where I really feel like we've won is where one of those two things are present. Um, look, running a private equity fund, there's no doubt that deploying capital and then returning capital are the big events that take place. Yeah. 
Um, but you maybe do that a couple of days a year. So <laughs> you've got to enjoy a lot more than two or three days a year, right? Yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, great. Hey, what I'd love to do now is look at the code of the back end of Tim Reid. So um, what I'd love to do is go back to where your life began. So you're a country lad. Uh, you initially grew up in Druin. What was, a, what was life like for a, a young Tim Reid running around the country? Yeah, so I grew up in country Victoria. Um, we lived in Druin until I was in grade five and then moved to Marysville and I was there till I was in year 10. Um, Druin back then was about 2,000 people and Marysville was about four or 500 people. So they were pretty small country towns. Uh, look, life was pretty simple, right? There was, um, there was, I think, a footy, cricket, tennis. There was a little ass club in Warrigal that we used to um, go to on Saturday mornings. Um, there were three or four television channels and that was about it. Uh, Dad started his first business the year I was born and um, he was always an entrepreneur and um, always hard at work. Um, he was originally a school teacher. Mum was a school teacher as well. Um, so, you know, mum was always present and sort of taking care of my brother and sister and I sister's 16 months older than me and my brother 18 months older than her so like you know we'll be 50 51 52 um and just you know we're always back to back um I, they used to call me me too because as the youngest i'd run behind me too me too, me too. right right okay <laughs> try, try, trying to keep up with my brother and sister in whatever we were doing but but life was pretty good as a kid and 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 you know fa fairly carefree we had a lot of space that I think children today probably don't have. Yeah, nice. Were you any good at footy? Like, were you, were you um, you're a Geelong supporter, aren't you? I'm, and Nick and I are Hawthorne supporters, so we, we'll, you know, we won't hold that against you at this point in time. Um, were you a, like a in and under Neville Bruns type of player or, a, you know, what sort of player were you? I was a decidedly average footballer, if we want to <laughs> right. be honest on this po right. podcast, Blake. I used to play on the back line because I was reasonably fast and big enough to try and keep someone else a bit out of the game. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think I was there to make up the numbers as often as I was for anything else. Yeah, okay. Well, that rings a bell. <laughs> similar, similar to my footy career. Hey, was it when you were a teenager and you were rolling around um, – Druin, and then you, you moved to Melbourne a little later. Was it was it clear to you what you wanted to do when you, in inverted commas, grew up? Look, it, it wasn't clear to me at the time, but if I stand back and look now, there was probably a path that, that you know, I, I followed fairly seamlessly. Uh, I, I think I was really fortunate. Um, we moved um, from Marysville to Melbourne when I was starting year 10, and that, that was on the back of my parents' divorce, which was an incredibly challenging time for me personally and for, for our family. Um, but it did open up, um, my eyes to the possibilities sort of probably beyond what those small communities had, um, previously. Um, and so, uh, when I, um, got to Melbourne, the school I went to, there's sort of just an assumption that most people would go to uni and it wasn't clear to me in year 10 that I would ever go to uni. I just, most people left high school and got a job, um, where I'd been previously. So, 
Um, so th- that was probably good. And, and then when I started to look at uni courses, um, I, I think dad was very generous in the way that he would always talk about business at home. So he shared a lot with us and our family conversations. And, and so I think that always got me intrigued and wanting to learn more and asking questions. And he was always willing to engage in conversation and answer um, those questions. And so studying commerce was probably pretty clear. Yeah. Um, you know, if I look back again, if I, if I had my time again, I would absolutely do a joint commerce engineering degree uh, because I studied maths, um, chemistry, physics, et cetera, right through school and really loved it. I actually did first year commerce at, at uni as, uh, sorry, first year chemistry as an optional subject um, in my commerce degree um, anyway. But absolutely no regrets. It was, you know, it was a great springboard for me then to um, to go into business. Nice. And what was so you went to Melbourne Uni. You you lived on um, at Queens. Uh, what was uni life like for a a young Tim Reed with your locks flowing beautifully through the uh, <laughs> <laughs> through the air? Yeah, I did have hair back then, which yeah. unfortunately this is a podcast. No one will know that I don't today, Blake, <laughs> except that you just shared it with everyone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks about for that, that, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm going exactly the same way. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so look, uni was awesome. I, I just, um, I kind of living on campus was fantastic. Um, I, again, it just opened my eyes to so much and whether, um, that was the political debates and the sort of the span of views and opinions, um, the the theatre that was um, there, um, just, you know, the, the overall possibilities living in, in a Melbourne, just the restaurants, the food, the, the pubs, you know, the sport between um, different colleges and the camaraderie that that built and so on. Uh, so I had a great time. And again, it was sort of... Um, I, I felt like I was probably drinking from a fire hose. It was just all of these new, um, new things and, and a world that again, living in the country, I'd, I'd probably just not seen and was fairly, I was probably a fairly naive country kid, to be honest, um, when I arrived at Melbourne Uni and, and, and therefore, you know, made the most of everything that was there. <laughs> 